We're continuing our study through uh, the Gospels, looking at different questions that uh, Jesus asked people. Today's question is a little bit odd, but uh, it'll be interesting. These are the ones we've worked through last week. We had the discussion with Nicodemus that Jesus met at night to discuss the idea of being born again, the necessity of a change heart, not just an external changing your behavior, but an actual new birth being necessary for salvation. So today we pick up another discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees. So starting in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. We are not going to have a discussion today about demon possession. Suffice it to say that Satan is alive and well. Satan and his demons, who are the fallen angels, do influence things on the earth today. And like a lot of spiritual beings and spiritual things, they do and can have an impact in your physical life. They can have an impact in your physical well-being. This gentleman was possessed, was uh, oppressed by a demon, and he was, as it says, blind and mute. He could not speak and he could not see. So, Jesus healed the man, quite simply. It's just kind of as a matter of fact stated. He did it. So that he could both talk and see. This was not, uh, well, go away and you're healed, you just don't know it yet. It was evident. It was evident to everyone that this miracle had occurred. Let's pick it up. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? You remember several weeks ago, we talked about the discussion with John the Baptist, where John had sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one, or should we wait for another one? And John, Jesus said, wait a minute, and he turned and he healed and he cast out demons and he did those things, and then he turned to John's disciples and said, see, go look at the Old Testament, go look at the prophecy I'm doing that. So the crowd picked up on that also. The crowd picked up on it and said, this man just cast out a demon. Now, before this, he had been doing other miracles, so collectively all these miracles were working in their... And they go, hmm, maybe this is the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, the Pharisees heard this. Where were the Pharisees? Well, we've had this discussion before, but my opinion is that wherever Jesus went, wherever the crowd was around Jesus, there were always Pharisees on the periphery, kind of watching what was going on. The spies, if you would, or just curiosity, or trying to control the mob. So the Pharisees saw what was happening. You know, it's like, there's the miracle over there, and then the crowd starts murmuring, maybe this is the Messiah. And the Pharisees heard this, and there was this moment of panic. 
We are losing control of this crowd. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So we have Jesus. The miracle occurs. The crowd starts mumbling, maybe this is the Messiah. And then the Pharisees sit in the back and go, oh, no, we're in trouble. And they start their own rumor, which is, no, he isn't casting out demons because he is the Messiah. He's casting out demons because he is in cahoots with Satan. It is by the power of Beelzebub which is a fancy word for Satan, it is by the power of Satan that he cast out these demons. So they start this counter-rumor, if you would, to try to stop the rumor that he is the Messiah. Question, why would they do that? Come on, this is easy. To discredit him. Why would they want to discredit him? They don't want to lose power. It does. Really? We wouldn't do that today. No. Even when the gospel comes into some of the mainline denominations, they don't like it because the hierarchy doesn't want to lose their ecclesiastical structure. Their authority over the people. Let's look at, you know, a variety of different reasons. Let's say some of the Pharisees really were concerned about the Messiah, that Jesus was going to lead the people astray. I mean, let's be kind a little bit. And they, they wanted to protect the people. But, but why would they not think Jesus was the Messiah? Well, because he wasn't one of them. I mean, let's face it, if we're the top religious people and the Messiah is going to come, he's going to be one of us, right? I mean, isn't that obvious to any run-of-the-mill Pharisee? You know, he's going to be just like me. And all of a sudden, Jesus isn't just like them. He's different than they are. They don't like it. They don't like the fact that the people are following him. And they're going to put him in his place. And then you work your way down, and sure enough, you have people going, you know, I make my living getting money from the people because they believe that I'm the authority. And the moment that they stop following me and start following Jesus, they're going to give their tithes and their offerings to this Jesus dude. And we can't have that. How can we remain good Pharisees if we have no source of income. So you see all of these different reasons why they would look at Jesus and panic. And ultimately, they're going to get rid of him, but that's a ways down the line. Jesus knew their thoughts. Verse 25. Why is it significant that he knew their thoughts? I mean, Obviously, this rumor was getting started. I mean, he had heard their words, probably. It is significant that he knew their thoughts because he knew they weren't doing this for good motives. They weren't out just to protect the people. They weren't out to protect the people from this bizarre teacher 
named Jesus. No, he knew their thoughts. He knew what they were really up to. Once again, we have an indication of the divinity of Christ because he was able to discern the true motivation behind the hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And here's our question of the day. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He gives a variety of arguments here to support his case that he is not, in fact, a tool of the devil, but is, in fact, a minister of the power of the Spirit of God. Let's look at these reasons. Number one, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan is casting out demons, Satan is fighting against Satan. It doesn't make any sense. If Satan is allowing this individual by the power of Satan to cast out demons that came by the power of Satan, then Satan is fighting Satan, and that won't work. Why would that happen? Why would Satan work against himself? Is Jesus' first argument to the people. Hmm, okay, I'll buy that. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Now, you and I know, given the book of Revelation, given the prophecies, that the kingdom of Satan will not stand. We know that. We know that ultimately the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, will prevail. But we have to assume that Satan believes that he can still win. We have to assume that Satan still believes he is going to accomplish something. So the fact that Satan wants and believes that he is going to win would prevent Satan from, if you will, fighting against himself. He is using the demons to accomplish his purpose. He is not fighting against them. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, anybody know where we got the word Beelzebub? If you do, you're better than me, but there's all kinds of discussions. You ever heard the book, The Lord of the Flies? Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung. It's kind of, there's a, there's a discussion about where the word comes from, but uh, it is in fact a reference to Satan. little trivial pursuit there. <laughs> I read many, many pages about it. I still don't understand where it comes from. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? Now, this is interesting. Okay? Demon possession has always occurred um, in various amounts. There is some speculation, and I actually kind of agree with this, that when Christ came to the earth... 
Not only was there obviously a huge influx of the power of God into the world, but there was also a huge influx of the power of Satan into the world at that point in time trying to stop the mission of God, of Christ. Okay, so there was probably a more powerful impact of Satan at this time, but Satan has been alive and well and doing his thing forever. So there have been demon possessions for forever, demon oppression forever, and there always had been people who prayed to God to remove evil spirits from people. So Christ asked them, if I am removing them, the demons, by Satan, who are your followers removing them from? I mean, by what power are they doing it? If I'm doing it by the devil, are all of your disciples doing it by the devil also? We don't really know. We don't have any history of the Pharisees and their followers removing demons, okay? We don't have a, you know, a big catalog of events. But we do know that Jesus' disciples were given the power to remove demons. That was several chapters before this in the book of Matthew. We know that demons were being removed. So Jesus turns to the Pharisees and said, all these other things that are going on, whose power was that? Was that the power of God or was that the power of Satan? Are you going to condemn every, every act of demon removal that has ever occurred just so that you can condemn me? And you know what? The Pharisees go, mm, I might. I might. If that's what it takes, I will condemn everything in order to protect my position from you and your actions. So Jesus says first, a kingdom is, you know, cannot fight against itself with any chance of survival. And secondly, he says, all of these other things, all these other people who have been working and trying to get rid of demons, they are a picture, they are a representation that God is alive and well and is doing this business. And we get to the third reason. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Huh. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God, who is operating by the will of God the Father. I can only do that which the Father would have me do. And everything that he does is done by the power of the Spirit of God. Here we see the Trinity in action. Jesus goes back to this little casual statement up in verse 22. The man was brought. Jesus healed him. Just like that. He just... Admits it, it just happens. Now he gets around to mentioning the power by which that was done. I drove out demons by the Spirit of God. Remember that, because the rest of this lesson is about 
the Spirit of God. The rest of this lesson is about blaspheming, saying negative things regarding the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is true that I am here operating under the power of the Holy Spirit, then here, right now, the kingdom of God is entering your presence. Pharisees, you're in trouble, is what he's telling them. There is a new kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. As we work through these lessons in the weeks to come, we will have more discussion about the kingdom of God. We're not going to have a detailed discussion of it today, except to say this. We see in the New Testament this dual aspect of the kingdom of God. This idea that it is come, but it's not totally here. There is always the element of the kingdom fulfilled in the future. The kingdom of God is here. Christ, the king, has come. But Christ, the king, has come as the sacrifice in the Gospels. Christ, the king, as the king, will come in the future. So there's always this, this has occurred and this is coming portion of the kingdom. But what he's telling them is the kingdom is here now. Watch out. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Who are we talking about here? Who's the strong man? Satan. I am going to, this is Jesus speaking, I am going to come into the world... And I am going to get people. I'm going to extract. I am going to save people. And in order for me to do that, for, in order for me to come in and save some, I must bind the strong man. I must bind Satan. I must demonstrate my power over Satan so that I can save some. Pause, waiting for question. Hearing none, we will continue. Y'all are being too kind to me. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. It's an interesting metaphor. We believe, and rightfully so, that God is in control and in power and rules everything. And that's true. But we also remember because of our sin, we are slaves to the devil. God has given the devil authority over us because of our sin nature. Christ has come to rescue us from our fallen, from our enslaved state to Satan. Why is that important? Well, it's important because, once again, we have this mistaken belief 
that's been around for at least uh, you know a hundred years or so that basically we're, we're all pretty good people you know we're all on god's side and god's come along to to show us and tell us that we're doing nice things no we're not doing nice things we're slaves of the devil we have to be rescued or we're not going to be saved end of story so he has told the the pharisees Here are reasons why I did not do this under the power of Beelzebub. Anyone, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Okay? He's drawing a line. He is turning to the Pharisees and says, ultimately, you're either going to be on God's side, my side, or you're going to be on the other side. There's no middle ground. Ultimately, a choice has to be made. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. The Son of Man is Jesus. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Let's remind ourselves what Jesus, what the Pharisees have done. Jesus has cast out a demon by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he has taken this man who was demon-possessed and he healed him. The Pharisees took that act that healing by the Holy Spirit, and they ascribed it, they gave that authority to the devil himself. They said what was done by the Spirit was actually done by the power of Satan. And Jesus turns to them and he says, You can say anything you want about me. I am the Son of Man. You can say what you want about me, and it will be forgiven. I mean, let's face it, okay? I mean, if Jesus were here today, Jesus himself, physically, were here today, he'd look like an average guy. I don't think Jesus glowed. I don't think he walked six inches off the ground and never touched. He looked like a normal guy. He looked like a normal guy who had spent his life working in the carpentry shop, walked around with a bunch of low-life fishermen. So there's a little bit on Jesus' part of, okay, I'll grant you may not know who I am. You should. You should. But I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But when you take the power of the Holy Spirit, when you take the workings of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and you blaspheme that, there is no forgiveness for that. Does that bother anybody? Go ahead, Mike. (laughs) In Pakistan, you get assassinated for saying that. You're right. Yes.
What does it say? Already. The world is and was in darkness. Christ came into the world to expose the darkness, to bring the light. But there was a problem. It's not that people were neutral. It's that people loved the darkness. They loved being what they were. The Holy Spirit comes and works in a miraculous way in this story. A miraculous way that no one there could explain. So they had to make up something. It is a work of the devil. We have discussions about the unpardonable sin. The sin that cannot be forgiven. And sometimes, I've actually talked to people who have this fear that they've done it. They've committed it. Okay? It is some horrible thing in their life that they have done, and they say there's no forgiveness for fill-in-the-blank. Okay? Fill-in-the-blank with whatever you have done that you think is the most horrible thing in the world. Let me give you a little gospel. God can forgive that. Whatever it was that you have done, God can forgive it. But when the Holy Spirit comes to you and in His power seeks you and you reject it, ultimately, ultimately, there is no salvation for you. You can murder a hundred people. You can rob a hundred banks. You can do whatever crime, sin that is imaginable. And God will forgive you. The grace of God is strong enough, is powerful enough. He loves you enough. It can be forgiven. But when the Holy Spirit comes tapping on your heart and you say no, there is no salvation. There is no salvation apart from the working, the power of the Holy Spirit. What we have here are the Pharisees blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you're in deep trouble. Jesus says it will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a pretty serious condemnation, accusation that Jesus is making against them. 
question. In today's world, we don't have too many people ascribing the works of God to Satan. Why? Because we don't believe in Satan. As a general rule, our society today. It's kind of this bizarre thing. I had a friend once who was, in fact, a devout atheist. And he would chuckle about his wife because his wife believed in God but didn't believe in the devil. And it's like, how can you do that? You're either going to believe the book or you're not going to believe the book. Who gives you the power to pick or choose? But be that as it may, we're not very logical today. So as a general rule, we don't really believe in the devil in spite of all the exorcism movies that come out every year. Since we don't believe in the devil, we are not ascribing the works of God to the devil. But what are we ascribing the works of God to? To what are we giving the glory and honor that is due to the power of the Holy Spirit to in today's world? Self. Look what I have accomplished. I have saved myself. Somebody else. Go ahead. We want to take that which only God can do, which is save us, and we want to accomplish that by some other secular, non-God-given means. And I'm a big fan of education, okay? I like people being educated. I like to be educated. But you know what? Education is not going to save you. It's the old comment about in 1942 in Nazi Germany, you had the best educated chemist in the world. They really were. And they were figuring out ways to kill Jews faster and faster. That's what they were doing. It did not save them. It simply made them smarter sinners. Anybody else? Come on. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's not a fight. Until you are born again. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, you know, um, Romans chapter 7, you know, where it says the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things I, don't, I do, I don't want to do, etc., backward and forward. And there's a struggle going on. And I have said before, if you're not struggling with sin, you're either dead or you've lost. Okay? The unregenerated person, to use your comment, isn't fighting against the devil. He's quite content. Okay? 
It's once we accept Christ that the devil goes, hmm, I'd better deal with this situation. Man thinks he has the solution to everything. Ultimately, that's what it gets back to. Ultimately, it gets back to the Garden of Eden when Satan came to Eve and said, Did God really say? And Satan said, No. When you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. You will be able to determine what is right and what is wrong, and you will be in charge of your own destiny. We take the power, the influence, the glory of God, and we take it and we plop it onto something else. It can be me. It can be some institution. It can be some wooden idol. There was a editorial in the Wall Street Journal last week suggesting we bring back the Roman gods. Because we need something to worship. Yeah. How absurd. But when we remove our worship of God, we take that and we give it to something else. What the Pharisees were really worshiping was not God. The Pharisees were worshiping the Pharisees. They had constructed their system. They had constructed their life. They had constructed their way of doing things. And by golly, they weren't going to let this upstart Jesus guy get in their way. And they were willing to ascribe the works of God to the devil if that's what it took. And Jesus says, you know, I'm fair game. But when you take the power of God... And blaspheme it, you're doomed. A few more verses. Go ahead, Mike. Can I ask you a question and, and tell me if I'm wrong? Or you're wrong. Right. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I've always felt that the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin was attributing the works of Christ to Satan or to himself and not to, not to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that, in a sense, is unforgivable because... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, it is unforgivable. Right. But if a person later realizes that who mm-hmm. he is and that the Holy Spirit was doing these things and accepts Christ, mm-hmm. then in a sense the that sin is forgiven. Right. That's why that's why I use the word ultimate rejection of the Holy Spirit. Yes. To get to your deathbed and to have continued to reject the Holy Spirit. There is nothing else. There is no plan B. I believe, I believe that the Pharisees right here could have repented and Christ would have saved them. Okay? But to do so, they would have had to take that blasphemy, recognize it for what it was, repent of it, and accept the power of the Holy Spirit. But ultimate rejection of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because there is no plan B. That's the way I look at it. Right. As far as I know, 
As long as you have breath in your lungs, you can repent. Now, I do know, unfortunately, that God allows you to go down this downward spiral described in Romans chapter 1, and you harden your heart, and you can become a hard person. But you know, God works in mysterious ways. We'll let God do what God does best. Verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Simple, simple, simple. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. To an agricultural society that Jesus was walking around in, that would have been obvious. Today, we seem to have this mistaken idea. First off, we think we're all good trees, and we're not. Secondly, sometimes we think the fruit is some random occurrence that has nothing to do with the quality of the tree. Christ is talking about the disciples, I mean the uh, Pharisees here. Okay? If you're a good tree, you're going to produce good fruit. What is the fruit? Go over to Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Go, hmm? I, I'm getting better. I, I needed one of my children the other last time to, to remember the one I always forget. Back up two verses, and you get the fruit of the bad fruit, the fruit of the devil. And it's an equally long list, but not nice stuff. Jesus is looking at them and going, by your fruit, you will know the quality of the tree. I wonder what he thinks of them. Verse 34, you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? Not very politically correct. Not very uh, diplomatic. He finally just turns to them and says, enough. Enough is enough. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You have looked at good fruit, the healing of the man, and ascribed it to a bad tree, which just doesn't make any sense. You brood of vipers. What is a brood of vipers? It's a bunch of snakes. What are snakes? They're poisonous creatures. You don't want to be around them. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you, the, tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Almost enough to make you want to be quiet for the rest of your life. Everyone will give account for the words that they speak. For by your words you are, will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Does somebody else have a different word for acquitted in verse 37? For by your words you will be justified which is probably a better word 
it just scares some theologians. Why does it scare theologians? Well, it gives you the idea that you are being justified by your works, your words. But what this is saying is that in the eyes of the world, they don't see the condition of your heart. What they see is your fruit, and the most evident, the most obvious fruit that you produce is, are your words. It's what comes out of your mouth. So, good Christians, when you're driving home and somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you say a few choice words about Beelzebub and his descendants regarding the person in the other car, what are you demonstrating to the, your heart? What you're demonstrating to the watching world is that you need more grace. Let's look all the way back, okay? The Pharisees had seen an obvious act of the power of God, but they couldn't handle it. They couldn't take it. So they took that and they ascribed it to Satan. What they had done is by their words, they had taken the work of God and they had given it to somebody else. By their words, they demonstrated the condition of their heart. And Jesus says, the condition of the heart produces the words, which is the fruit that shows whether or not you are in fact a good tree. Words do not save us. But they are the visual, represent, the auditorial representation. They are the obvious representation of the condition of your heart. Now, does that mean we're never ever going to say any bad words? No. We're all fallen sinners, saved by the grace of God. We all need his help every day. But there is a difference between... The heart that is perturbed when it sins and the heart that enjoys when it sins. When we say the bad words to our children, grandchildren, co-worker, etc., do we repent of that? Do we apologize for that? Do we correct that? Or do we say, no, I said the right thing, I was right, they were wrong, to Beelzebub with them. If, be, if we ascribe the work of God, the good things of life, the things that God has done in our lives, if we ascribe that to someone else, it's died. If we ascribe that to something else, we are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But there is one other thing we need to remember in all of this. Turn back to chapter uh, 10, just a few pages back. 
Verse 24. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. This is Jesus speaking. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? If they're going to say bad things about Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us when they say bad things about us. But we don't want them to say bad things about us, do we? I mean, let's face it. How many of us want them to say bad things about us? We don't. But if we become concerned, if we become more concerned with what they're saying about us, then we are about being faithful to the work of God in the world today, then we've sold out. I mean, it's just that simple. We have taken our light that God has given us, and we've hidden it. So, what is the point of all of this lesson? The point of all this lesson is to ascribe to God the glory of God. To give God the honor, to give God the recognition for what God has accomplished in this world. What has God accomplished in this world? All good things come from God. When we take the good things that God has given us, when we take the good things that God has provided, and we take that glory or we give that glory to some person, place, institution, or something else, we have taken that which belongs to God and we've given it to something else. And if we do that ultimately if we do that continually, if we do that to our death, then we will die doing our own thing, which is not a pretty picture. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that works in our lives. May we learn... May we learn to recognize and may we learn to be grateful for the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.